It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And on today's show, another in our occasional series of meetings with remarkable cartoonists. This time it's the comics artist slash journalist Joe Sacco. Joe has been called the world's foremost cartoon war correspondent. Over the years, he's reported from the besieged Bosnian cities of Sarajevo and Garajda, from the Palestinian territories during the First and Second Intifadas, and from the Iraq War. His latest book explores the roots of conflict in the Gaza Strip. We'll talk to him about the book, about his experiences in the Middle East, and about his career as a cartoon journalist right after this. And now on with today's show, a conversation with someone I've long wanted to talk to, Joe Sacco. For about two decades now, Joe has been helping to establish comics as a serious documentary medium. And I know it's true that comic artists have been creating great works of nonfiction and oral history for quite some time. But nobody does it quite like Joe Sacco. He practices a form of immersion journalism, traveling to conflict zones, spending stretches of time getting to know a place and its people, collecting stories and impressions. Then he'll spend an even longer time rendering those stories in painstakingly illustrated panels, hundreds of such panels in a typical book. The process takes years, and reading his books, you can feel the weight of all that work, of all that history, and all those lives and deaths that Joe so carefully records. Joe Sacco's latest book is called Footnotes in Gaza. It stems from a couple of trips he took to the Gaza Strip in 2002 and 2003, He was there researching some traumatic events that took place 50 years ago when Israeli forces captured Gaza during an abortive war with Egypt. Joe and I talked about his new book in the second part of our conversation, but first I wanted to know a little bit more about his career. Turns out he wanted to be a print journalist initially, and cartooning was just a sideline. At what point did you attempt to fuse your interest in drawing and cartooning with your chosen profession of journalism? Well, at some point, I actually abandoned my chosen profession of journalism because all the jobs I got were sort of disheartening and demoralizing for me personally. So I fell back on cartooning to see if I could maybe make a living that way. That was very difficult to do. At some point, I ended up in Berlin, and I was drawing comics, but I was also uh, doing rock posters. That's where the, that's where the, the money, uh, what, what there was of it, was coming from. But I'd, I'd still been very interested in what was going on in the world. You know, I still cared about current events, and I was particularly interested in what was going on in the Middle East and what was going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And at some point, being in Berlin, being relatively close, I thought, okay, I should just go down there and have a look, and I will do a series of comics about my experiences there. That was when? That was in 1991. And it wasn't as if I sort of thought, I will do journalism in comics form. It was more like, okay, I came out of the tradition of autobiographical comics. I'll just do, you know, my little adventures in in, um, Palestine. And if I end up interviewing people, we'll see how that goes. And and, but that that part of me really kicked in when I got there. And I started interviewing people as I remembered doing, you know, as I remember being trained to interview people, The, the journalistic imperative just came to the fore. So what became your book, Palestine, the series of comics that became that book, really began your career as a comic journalist? I guess you could say that, yes. Wow. I'm saying wow because you seem so accomplished at that point. I mean, I have the book. It's sitting right here. And this seems like a guy who's been practicing this particular hybrid form for years. And it was your very first try. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's true. Um, I never felt quite that way. I was always a little astounded at how well it was received because for me, the information I was getting was really in some ways, I won't say surface information, but it was, it's there for the picking. It's just ordinary people telling me their stories. So it didn't seem like such a great revelation to me. I, I sort of knew some of that stuff from reading other things, mm. but um, I mean, and, and the truth of the matter is, I mean, in, in, in the comic or the, the book Palestine, you'll see that I'm bumbling around a bit. There was a lot of truth to that. I was relatively inexperienced, and you know, I was getting myself into a bit of trouble here and there and not knowing what was going on, which I, I show. Well, Joe Sacco is a character in all your reportage that I've seen. I mean, he's always there. You never That's try right. to disappear. 
No. I mean – well, first of all, it's hard to draw yourself out of a scene. Uh, second of all, many things are going on that involve you. There, there, are in, there are sort of interactions with you that somehow inform, inform the reader about something. If you're a Westerner sort of going through these uh, camps or whatever and people react to you as a Westerner, like telling you off, like, why are you here? You, we, we've, we've talked to enough journalists and we've got nothing out of it. I want to show that sort of thing. I don't – it's very – to me, it's always been very um, artificial to say a reporter was walking in a refugee camp in the Gaza Strip and someone approached him. <laughs> That seems – I'm not, not going to do that kind of thing. Well, well most reportage uh, – correct me if you think I'm wrong – doesn't have a first person in it at all or a third person reporter. I mean it's once in a while they might say this reporter. <laughs> That's true. But, but uh, some of – I won't say it was my model, but I have noticed that British journalists often will, will uh, have first person accounts mm. – you know, you tend to find that more. And when the New York Times ever does a first-person account by a reporter, it's because they were kidnapped or mm-hmm. or something really uh, unusual happened mm-hmm. happened to that person. To them, yeah. And they have to become part of the story. But other than that, they're the objective observer, who's you know sort of the omniscient narrator in the piece. Yeah. So they say. Yes. But you never are. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not omniscient. I'm fallible. I show that. Um, I think that's almost – that's, that's, in some ways that's a commentary on other reporters to admit that you're fallible. And uh, yeah, I'm there and in some ways I think that, that demonstrates to the, the, the reader that you're seeing this through one person's eyes from his perspective. Uh, not to say it's not an honest look at what I've seen but it is a one person's perspective. Mm. The Joe Sacco though in your comics has no eyes. Yes. Um, Just a pair of glasses with a reflection off of them. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of silly, but uh, I think when I, when I came up with the way I drew, drew my character, I thought, well, no reader will ever know me, you know, not that deeply. So, you know, the eyes are the window to the soul. And now it seems a little silly, but, uh, but now I've gotten so used to it also, I don't even think about it. That's just how I draw myself. Mm-hmm. I, I, I noticed that other, other people say, um, you know, you draw yourself relatively nondescript. And what's being pointed out to me is that having a nondescript character allows a reader to step into that character's shoes. Um, in addition to being interested in, in journalism, uh, interested in the Middle East, I think you've described yourself in the past as a war junkie. Well, I titled a chapter that. And, and to me now, it's, it's, it's actually a tag I don't like. It was, it, that was the name for a book, too. I don't think of myself as a war junkie, but I do feel like during the Gulf War, I was glued to the set. I was just uh, pulled into it and obsessed with the news. I think there are other people who are obsessed with the news. I just came up with the idea of war junkie, and then that, that sort of hangs around your neck. So you wouldn't confess to any particular interest in war, war zones, conflict zones? No, I would. I would confess that war as a concept interests me. I think partly that comes from uh, – listening to my parents' stories um, about their experiences in World War II. They, they grew up in Malta, which was very heavily bombed by the Germans and the Italians, and their stories were told around the table. Then we lived in Australia. We had a lot of uh, European immigrant friends from other countries in Europe, and their parents remembered World War II, and we heard those stories. So World War II as a background was I – mean, I feel like I grew up in its shadow, even though I was born you know, 15 years after it ended. Your family has first-person stories of being bombed, of seeing people killed. Right. In fact, I did a comic book about my mother's experiences in World War II where she basically wrote letters to me. I, I would ask her about very specific things like, uh, in the next letter, tell me about life in the shelter. And she would send me back a one-page description of it, and I would boil that down to something I could use. In, in fact, that was maybe one of the first times I learned how to tell someone else's story um, and try to get visual clues from her, like try to research what it looked like, ask her to draw certain implements they were using to grind coffee and things like that. Did she have a look at it afterwards? I assume she did. Yeah, she did. What'd she say about your visual imagination of her childhood? I think she felt it was, 
I mean, maybe because I'm her son, but she said that 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 seems to be quite good. You know, that that's uh, oh, that's a good test, good reality check on your abilities. Yeah. Now, normally, though, these days when you work, for instance, when you were working on the current book, Footnotes in Gaza, were you um, were you collecting photographs? How were you, were you doing sketches when you were on site in Gaza? Generally, I take photographs for reference. Uh-huh. I know I'm going to draw certain things over and over again, so I take photographs of them. I take photographs of the people I interview if they allow it, and usually they do. I seldom sketch. I do when it doesn't seem appropriate to take out the camera or where it could be uh, dangerous on some level. Uh, for example, an Israeli military position, a checkpoint. You're not supposed to take a picture of it, but no one says anything about drawing it as you're, as you're you know, mm. going by the checkpoint in your cab. There must be a number of occasions, in fact, where you can't use a camera. For instance, um, in, in uh, footnotes in Gaza, you met people who are on the run, on the lam, from the Israeli defense forces or from the Shin Beit, the uh, Israeli internal security, people whose very image might get them killed. So right. I can imagine the camera stayed in your pocket during those interviews. Yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, yeah. And, and I would maybe come up with a visual representation that maybe approximated some features and just leave it at that. Mm, mm. Well, before we get into uh, the heart of the current book, um, this story or set of stories from Gaza, um, I think I should ask, uh, and you'll understand why, how do you feel about Israel? I feel Israel is a nation state that exists and will continue to exist I mean, I think it's a state that, like many others, was born under contentious circumstances. Other people were definitely affected by it. I've, I've got to say, I'm, I'm, you know, definitely Palestinians uh, lost out in the creation of Israel. But Israel exists, and it will, I imagine, continue to exist. You don't consider yourself anti-Israel? No, of course not. Mm. Do you have Israeli friends? I have some Israeli friends, yes. You spent time in Israel? I've spent some time in Israel, you know, I've gone down to Tel Aviv and gone to bars and stuff. And, you know, it's very familiar to me. And I've met very good people there. And mm. I, I certainly don't wish anyone there any harm. Now, the reason I ask that is because both these books that you wrote that are set in, in Palestinian territories, both the book Palestine and uh, the more recent one, Footnotes in Gaza, are really from the Palestinian point of view. That's who you spent the most right. time with. That's right. whose stories you're telling. And I make no apologies for it. And, and the majority of them, no, I think I, it's fair to say all of them, you know, are chafing under occupation pretty badly. Yes, yeah. I think that's fair to say. So, you know, it seems that some people reading these books might imagine that you have it in for Israel. They might imagine that, but I started this whole thing out. Uh, I started getting interested because I grew up with the notion that Palestinians were terrorists. That's mm. what I was getting from the American media Without really thinking about it, that's that's what I got, and that is because every time the word Palestinian came up in the news, when I you know when I was in high school, high school age, there was a bombing or there was a hijacking or something like that. Not that those in- incidents didn't take place, and not to say those incidents weren't atrocious or atrocities, but that was the only time I heard the word Palestinian. So I I definitely associated them with terrorism. It took me a long time and some self education to find out some of the context. What the American media never provided for me was the context. And that made me angry because I studied journalism and I thought, okay, so my my colleagues in the world of journalism haven't given me what I need to really understand this. And, you know, that's part of the reason I went. It was part of the reason was just to get ordinary Palestinian voices. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in the politicians and the rhetoric and all that, what do Palestinians think? What are they going through? Maybe we need to know something about them. So I feel like um, the Israeli perspective is very well presented. Uh, We know it. We hear it from government people all the time. And uh, that's fine. But what about about the other side? Aren't we supposed to know the people that – that we come into conflict with, and I would say we've come into conflict with the Palestinians. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so your first trip to the Palestinian territories, is that the term you like to use, by the way? Uh, Palestinian territories, occupied territories. 
I mean, I, I don't have, I don't, I don't, I don't call it Judea and Samaria. If that's what you're asking. <laughs> I call it the West Bank and I call it the Gaza Strip. <laughs> Got it. Your first trip was to the West Bank. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what were you expecting to find, and how did, um, how did it differ from those expectations? Well, I'd read a number of human rights reports and other books about what what was going on. I basically found what I thought I would find. Um, except there's a there's a, a learning curve, and you realize that certain things that aren't emphasized in books are much more important. I didn't really understand much about the factions and all that. I mean, to me, it was the Palestinians, but then you realize, oh, there's Fatah and the Popular Front in those days. Hamas sort of came a bit later as far as being a very big organization. Um, so I, I learned a lot, but basically some of my – what I thought I would find was was confirmed to a large extent. You were well-treated by the Palestinians you met. Yes, I think so. I mean every now and then you have run-ins with people who want something from you or um, are angry about something and are going to take it out on you. But generally, yes, very well. I mean they're very hospitable people, which is something I want to show too. They're always offering you, not offering, insisting that you sleep in their bed and they sleep on the floor, that you get right. the best seat in the house, that you get to sit next to the heater when it's freezing. At least, you know, I'm taking this from your, from no, your that's, word. No, that's correct. Some people might expect that you'd also meet fanatics, you know, that you might meet people who are full of hatred and uh, maybe dangerous people. You meet people who um, might be explosive in some situation. It, when I was... Um, when I was in Gaza recently, I made it a point to try to find someone from Hamas and talk to him and try to find someone from Islamic Jihad and talk to him. I didn't include what I uh, their stories in it because they were relatively dry and more about sort of the polemics of it. I felt like they were they were being spokespeople and not being people, you know. So that very first um, visit you made to the occupied territories um, that produced this book we've been referring to called Palestine that came out in the 90s, 1990s, um, is also the first time you went to Gaza. Yes. You went to the West Bank, then you went to Gaza. Yes. I went twice to Gaza on that trip. Once I went on a UN tour, which was rather odd. Um, and when I was on that little UN tour, someone sort of took me aside and said, listen, you're not going to see anything this way. If you really want to see the camp, come and stay with me for a few days. And I returned maybe a week later and, and did just that. When I read about Gaza or talk to people about Gaza, I often hear some variation on phrases like hellish or like a big prison camp. What was your first impression? Well, that that's not my first impression. My first impression is of a bustling uh, place. I mean, Gaza City is a bustling place. People are taking cabs. Life is going on. There are markets. All that sort of thing is going on. That's my first impression. Maybe later, as you get to know people, you begin to understand that they have they can't get out. They're denied the ability to move around. Um, they don't have any opportunities. They're relatively poor, mostly, and wondering how they're going to pay the rent or whatever. And then you real you know you you begin to realize more. They're they're. There are other problems. Their homes are being demolished and things like that. So your, my first impression is interesting Arab area, you know. Um, it's not particularly – Gaza isn't particularly beautiful, but uh, I just really met uh, good people there. And you begin to feel for them. You begin to see them. You know, they're, they're, In some ways, they're, you're a foreigner and they're putting up a little front of trying to be amused and amusing. Later – they would tell me after I knew them for weeks, you know, we're kind of putting on a face for you on some level because you're a foreigner. We don't want to make you feel bad, but we're really depressed. This mm. is really depressing life. So under it, there's something going on. And I think since I've left, it has turned into a prison on some level. You can say, you can say that because people are – very, very few people are allowed in and out. Uh, people who have scholarships often aren't allowed out. Very few things are allowed in. In other words, if you want if you want to explore your mind and, and with books and things like that, I mean, forget it. There are people in Gaza who have relatives, say, on the West Bank, and who haven't seen them. That's that's such a that's a very common story. I mean, they haven't seen them for for decades. That's a very common story. I mean, under the Oslo Accords, there was supposed to be some sort of a, a, a an easy access 
between Gaza and the West Bank. Now, there are many reasons we can talk about the Oslo Accords and how it collapsed and how both sides didn't do this or whatever. But the, the, along that point, yes, they haven't seen relatives for years and years and years mm. in some cases. Physically, Gaza is this little strip of land. That's right. Along the Mediterranean. That's right. Um, and now all borders are basically blocked. Um, there are a few ways – there are a few ways out, uh, Israeli border entry points, but those are blocked. There's the sea, which the Israeli Navy blocks, and now there's the Egyptian side, and the Egyptians are building a wall with the help of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, to stop the tunnels. And it seems like Egypt is being even more restrictive than it was before. Now, we're talking about um, circumstances under the current blockade that's, that's been right. going on for, what, two years now? The, the blockade was going on in some level – Longer than that, when I was there, there was a blockade in a sense because you couldn't just as an ordinary Gazan say, I'm going to the West Bank, you know, and go up to an Israeli soldier at the checkpoint and say, um, do you mind? Can you let me through? That, that, that wasn't happening. There was already a blockade. It intensified as, as politics developed, as Hamas was elected. It intensified when Hamas and Fatah started fighting. When Hamas took over, it, it became – Gaza became, in the Israeli terminology, the enemy entity. And it seems that uh, the European Union and the United States have also joined in in some way in, in the blockade. Now, it's a common front now. Now, we should just give a little background here. Um, Hamas got a plurality of seats in the Palestinian Authority elections, yes? That's right. Back in 2006. Hamas classified as a terrorist organization by the U.S., by Israel, of course, and uh, it took over from Fatah, which is considered a more moderate faction, which had run the Palestinian Authority until that time. It took over in Gaza in 2007. Hamas did. That's right, with, yeah. in, in a battle, basically, with Fatah. But this is a little bit tangential to your work uh, on this book, because that is all based on a visit you made, or, or two visits you made in 2002 and 2003. Before Hamas took over. Right. Hamas hadn't taken over by that point. Mm. Can you give us a little history, uh, very brief, of Palestinians in Gaza in this strip of land that um, is roughly seven miles wide at the widest, maybe 20 or so miles long? Okay. Well, in 1948, when Israel declared its independence, uh, as you know, there was a, 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 lot of, a lot of refugees were generated, three-quarters of a million or so. Uh, 200,000 ended up in the Gaza Strip. It tripled the Gaza Strip's population, and the people sort of had to figure out how to to deal with it. Uh, the Quakers moved in, put, gave the people some tents, and eventually the UN actually put together an agency to handle specifically the, the refugee problem, the refugee situation. And this, they is, started, this is UNRWA. UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Work, Works Agency. Well, you actually pronounce the W, do you? UNRWA, that's how I pronounce it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they they basically established the camps as we know them, and they were built from that point, and they distribute food and things like that to those that are needy and all that kind of thing. So so there were many refugees there and many um, – you know, and, and of course the local residents. Gaza was administered by the Egyptians until 67. Um, of course, there's the 56 war, which we can get into, but – in 67, uh, there was a six-day war. Israel conquered the Gaza Strip, booted out the Egyptians, and eventually started putting settlements in Gaza. And uh, settle settlements, we're talking about perhaps at the most seven, 8,000 settlers and the army to protect them. And when you count all the zones of control and all that, they basically had about a third of Gaza. And we're talking about more than a million people at the time uh, million, one and a half million people or so in the rest of Gaza. In 2005, uh, Ariel Sharon, then the prime minister, unilaterally, unilaterally withdrew the settlers and the army from Gaza but kept tight control of the borders. And then in 2007, Hamas took over in Gaza. So uh, again, you have this tiny um, fragment of land, I think about 140 square miles. Something like that. Something right. like that, in which you currently have over a million people crammed. A million and a half. A yeah. million and a half. Considered one of the more densely populated places on earth. And these people are either refugees themselves, the very oldest people, or, or the descendants of refugees. 
probably 80%, 80% are refugees or descendants of refugees, yes. And they live in what are still called camps. They're called cases. camps. Yeah. Um, the camps, you know, you don't think of tents. And even the squalid one-story little buildings that I drew with the corrugated roofs, I uh, don't think so much of that, even though there are parts of the camp that still look like that. Mostly the change I saw from the early 1990s to now is a lot of building. I, I, I imagine during the Oslo period, the, the period when it seemed that maybe peace was going to break out, people started, okay, um, we're, you know, there's going to be peace, let's build. And there are a lot of buildings, multi-story buildings. You, you wouldn't know that the, the camps often uh, abut the towns. You wouldn't know where one began and one ended in a lot of cases. The, the, the camps seem like cities. They seem like cities, and yet they're referred to as camps, which gives a sense, and the people are referred to as refugees, which gives a sense of impermanence, that people are still waiting for something to happen. Well, on some level they are. I mean, maybe on some level some of them know this is how it's going to be, and we need to make the best of our lives now. And on some level they think, well, we were, the UN has said that we need to be compensated or allowed to return. So we need to dis- – as, as one of them told me, you know, it's an individual decision. You can't take it away from us, our right of return. You cannot take it away from us. You have to let us decide how we're, gonna, how we're going to deal with it individually. Now, I don't – you know, that might not be something uh, an Israeli wants to hear. Israel has its own problems, its own population and doesn't want uh, an influx of a, a Palestinian influx. But – you know, where do you make this balance? It's it's one of the it's one of the the great questions about this whole thing. Hmm. And we'll return to today's interview with comics journalist Joe Sacco in just a moment. This is the Seventh Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. Now back to today's interview with Joe Sacco. We're discussing his latest book, Footnotes in Gaza. And as we heard in the previous part of the show, Joe made his first trip to Gaza in the early 1990s. He then returned in 2001 on an assignment for Harper's Magazine with Chris Hedges, former New York Times Middle East Bureau chief. While in a town called Han Yunus, they started looking into an incident that took place about 50 years before that Joe Sacco had read about. I sort of remembered a document, a UN document, or or, or a reference in a book by Noam Chomsky, and I looked it up. It was about Han Yunus, and it was about an incident that took place in 56 where 275 people were killed. And we thought, Chris and I thought, okay, well, if we're going to be in Han Yunus, let's ask about that. That might have some bearing on the situation, you know, it's a, if it's an important part of the history. And we got there and we devoted about a day to just asking older people. And yes, the story was confirmed that there was an incident there and many people had been killed. What seemed to have happened is that men of military age were shot by the Israeli forces. Rounded uh, up. Rounded up and shot. We, we talked to someone in one of the eastern villages of Han Yunus who talked about his dad being taken away and then finding his dad with some other bodies. We talked about a guy who was shot in his, in his home and had survived. We talked about, uh, to a woman who had just been married and her husband was, was taken away and shot and uh, a couple of other people. Hmm. And you tried to include that in this report for Harper's Magazine. Chris, in writing up his story, put that stuff in. But it was cut. Now, for whatever reason, I, I can't say. It could have been for space, but even that is, you know, history gets cut. That's just how, that's just how the world works. You decided to go back and, and look into it more deeply. Right. And I think it was, it was almost – I felt that that cutting it was like a dare to me. It's like, how can you leave this out? This is um, – to me, it's, it's significant. It's, it's a large event. And it's, it also seemed to be an event that people didn't really know about, even people who know about the region. So I thought, yes, I mean, these people are still around. We met some of them. Why not go and really find out what happened? And then there was another incident in Rafa that, I, that happened a few days later, and I thought, well, I should find out about that also. Rafa is a, a town even farther south. In right. It's close to Hanunas, but uh, a bit further south. So two incidents, both uh, within – a week of each other, roughly. About 10 days, yeah. About 10 days of each other, back in 1956. This is during what was called the Suez Canal Crisis. Right. That was a strange war. It was a strange alliance of Britain and France and Israel against Egypt. Each country had its own reasons 
for going to war with Egypt. Uh, with the French and British, it partially had to do with the Suez Canal being nationalized by the Egyptians. It partly had to do with the Algerian War and Egyptian support for that. And also uh, Nasser, the, the president of Egypt, his rhetoric about pan-Arabism, which was warring the British with their holdings in Iraq. The Israelis probably wanted to hit uh, Egypt at the time because uh, Nasser was getting Soviet bloc weapons and was going to incorporate this into it in his army. And they felt we better get him before he act he actually uh, integrates these weapons. But as a as a sidelight, uh, they had the the Israelis had a problem with uh, guerrillas coming over from Gaza, and they could take care of that problem also. Hmm. Yeah, there had been. Uh Hostilities going on for quite a while between the Palestinians and the Egyptians on the one side in Gaza and the Israelis. That's right. Uh, there had been, been cross-border raids by Fedayeen, the guerrillas you referred to. There were strikes by the Israeli military. Um, and this had been going on for a while, escalating, and in 1956 it all came to a head. That's right. And as, uh, as a part of this crisis you just mentioned, Israel then launched a, a real assault on Gaza. Yes, uh, an armored assault, you know, uh, brigades coming through. They conquered the Gaza Strip pretty quickly and then moved on into the Sinai. Um, uh, Han Yunus fell in on November 3rd, 1956, and it seemed that uh, what followed happened right as it fell in, in the course of it being overrun. Mm -hmm. So that's what you went to find out more about. What happened in Han Yunus and Rafa in the first couple of weeks of November 1956? And your methods consisted of? My methods? Yes. <laughs> My methods consisted of um, going and speaking to people who uh, experienced it. You spent hours and hours and hours talking to these now old people. That's right. About events that had happened 50 years prior. Right. What did you learn? I learned that um, that Israeli forces in, in Han Yunus had, had uh, uh, taken men out of military age and, age and shot them in the streets or against walls and sometimes in their homes. And in, in Rafah, what happened is there was a screening operation, and in the course of the screening operation, many men were killed. Basically, as they ran toward the school where the screening was going to take place— they were fired at on occasion, beaten, uh, sometimes heavily beaten. And it seems that some people who arrived late to the school were stopped by Israeli soldiers and just shot in the streets. Mm. And your ultimate intention was to draw all of this? Yes, yes. I mean, that's what I do now. I mean, uh, it, it would be worth uh, maybe highlighting it in some other way, but this is this is my career now, so it's what I know how to do. So your trips to, to Gaza in 2002 and 2003 were, were, were basically data collection. Yes, that's right. Oral history. That's right. And then this book has just come out. So over the last six years, what have you been doing? Uh, I was writing for the first few months, writing, organizing my notes and writing. And then drawing, and that, that whole process took about six, six and a half years. Six and a half years. I'm going to open the book right now. So, so I've, I've got your book now, Footnotes in Gaza, in front of me. And um, this is the result of, as we said, um, some months of, of time gathering information in Gaza and then uh, years and years, six years of composing and drawing and planning. And what I'm seeing are these black and white illustrations, um, extremely detailed, um, you've got this style that you've developed over the years. I think in the old days, you, your style may have looked a little like Robert Crumbs or some other well-known underground cartoonist. I think that's true. But now you have a, a really recognizable Joe Sacco style. And um, there's, a, there's a great deal of detail, as I say, and there's this cross-hatching, this intricate cross-hatching that's used for shading. Is right. that all drawn freehand? That's all drawn freehand. And maybe I'd, maybe I'd think of some other way to do it if I knew how to do some other way, but that's what kind of comes out of my hand. And, and you're scratching away at these with a pen, essentially. That's right, yeah? with a nib, yeah, pen and, and a, nib. A very fine point pen. Yeah. Old-fashioned. Old-fashioned, dip it in the ink and all that. Seriously? Yeah. And, I, and you've dated um, these pages. Yes, so, because I'm a little anal about that kind of thing. So I can watch your progress. You can, yes. And what I'm seeing uh, as I look at the dates is, 
boy, a couple of pages per month in some cases. But maybe I was on holiday. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or doing another assignment. It's always, po it's always possible. Well, you tell me. How long did you work on these? Okay. Well, um, generally a page would take uh, two and a half days to draw. If it's a very complicated page, it might take three days. Mm. Some pages only took about two days to mm. draw. Mm. If you go toward the end of the book, you'll see that, yes, I was doing, you know, 10 pages a month consistently. At some point, I sort of stopped doing any traveling at all. I stopped speaking to people like you, you know, for <laughs> interviews, and I just really concentrated on the work. And uh, as I say, a lot of detail. You've got um, a lot of scenes um, of you talking to people or people telling their stories. You've got street scenes. You've got big two-page spreads that um, illustrate, you know, what it looks like in certain parts of Gaza. There's some unforgettable ones here um, from contemporary Gaza, scenes in this sort of no-man's zone at the very edge, say, of Rafah, where it borders on the military uh, installations of the Israelis. And right. it's this swath of land all bulldozed, right. horrible-looking place. Right. Um, you've got scenes also of your recreations of uh, the events in 1956 that this book is really concerned with, scenes of people being shot, scenes of people being herded into this schoolyard in Rafah, uh, men crouched, uh, hundreds of them crouched in this schoolyard, being beaten. Um, there's a incredible power to these images. Um, Edward Said, the uh, Palestinian-American scholar who wrote the introduction to your previous book of Palestinian reportage, uh, Palestine, said that he said maybe with the exception of one or two novelists or poets, yours were the most powerful representations of the hardships in Gaza that he had ever seen or that he had ever been exposed to. Do you have any idea why, where that power comes from? Uh, that's a good question. I think when we an image makes us confront something directly, um, I think the same is probably true with photographs. Um, the advantage of comics is that you can take someone to the past and make them confront something that can no longer be duplicated by by something like photographs. Uh, when we read when we read an account, we can imagine it in our mind, and it has a certain horror to it. But when we, we see an image, it's, it's, we can't sort of – we cannot avoid it. Well, I want to push you a little harder because it's not just the fact that they're images. Because Edward Said, in that quote that I paraphrased, said that they're more powerful than anything he'd seen on TV. And I think you can assume that he meant photographs as well. So there's something about the drawn image. Sometimes with the drawn image – uh, you can compose it in a way that, that gets to the essence of something a little more. It can be hard to get the, the photograph, to, the, the camera, to, the clicker to go off right at exactly the right moment. Sometimes it does, and the, and the image, you'll never forget it. You can, you can think of images like the, the guy getting his head shot in uh, Vietnam. in Vietnam, in Saigon. Those are such iconic images. They're, they're perfect. Mm. But with... with uh, Sort of the responsibility you have with drawing is that you have that power almost with every image. You can make it the right image. You can you can hold uh, a rifle butt up in the air at exactly the right angle to get the full power and the essence of that moment. And I think that's what it's about: is that you you've you, every image allows you that that power and that strength. You've reconstructed these events from oral accounts. Now, you yourself make it clear that they don't all jibe 100%. There are times when the memories don't match up. Do you feel, however, that the, the broader strokes that you use here, the events in November of 1956, of apparently a massacre by the Israeli Defense Forces in Khan Yunus and killings slash beatings and other abuses in Rafah. Do you think they're, they're truly accurate? Yes. And have you double-checked them against documentary evidence? There is some documentary evidence that, that uh, talks about incidents. I mean, there's the UN document that alleges, according to UN sources, 275 dead in Han Yunus, 111 dead in Rafah. It does give varying accounts. The Israelis say there was resistance to whatever they were doing. Um, I had a couple of Israeli researchers go through Israeli archives to find some things. They found explanations 
for example, for what happened in Rafa. The explanations um, were from Golda Meir, Moshe Dayan, and Ben-Gurion, all Israeli leaders at the time. They're a bit different from each other. Uh, basically, uh, the range is, well, there was a riot at a food depot and there was looting and they had to fi- the Israelis had to fire into the crowd to stop the looting. Another one was that uh, these, the Palestinians had arms and were firing at Israeli soldiers who had to fire back and that's why there were that's why there were the killings. In other words, there is documentary evidence, but it seems to be inaccurate. The documentary evidence is the sort of thing that is covering up something, I think. Golda Meir's response to an inquiry from the UN Secretary General. Mm. She has to explain what happened in Rafa. She says there were riots. Interestingly, uh, you include some some documents at the end of this as a kind of appendix. And it's interesting to go back to... um, November, not long after those events took place, to some minutes of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. Yes. Where a couple of Knesset members were talking about this and trying to get a debate going. One of them is named um, Esther Velenshka. She was a communist uh, member of the Knesset. And she said, according to um, your translated record uh, from the minutes of the Knesset, on November 28, 1956, the whole country has heard and is talking about these things. The Israeli public is ashamed of these acts and wants an immediate stop to them. There's no excusing these murderous acts in that they occurred during a time of war. These things were done after the occupation to a peaceful population, just as on October 29th, similar criminal acts were done to 49 peaceful residents of Kafir Qasem, acts that two weeks ago in the Knesset MK, that is member of, Kne- of the Knesset, Shokin called worse than treason. So there was apparently a big stir in Israel back in 1956, and that's sort of been lost over time. Uh, according to her, there was a big stir, and she's trying to get a debate going. I'm not 100% sure of that. Mm. What I do notice, though, is some members of the Knesset were really pressing Dayan. They wanted answers. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's one of the heartening things you find is at that time, there were members of the Knesset that certainly felt like if... Was there any truth to these stories or not? Hmm. And they wanted to find out. You, you've had some critics. I mean, uh, I've been looking at the reviews, and most have been quite favorable. Um, even in, in some Jewish publications, there's, you know, you've generally been given, uh, I think, favorable treatment. Is that right? I think so. You've had some criticism. Um, in a review by the um, uh, an Associated Press reporter, Marcus Brogdon, he quotes um, Meyer Pale, uh, an Israeli military historian, as saying, quote-unquote, there was never a killing of such a degree. Nobody was murdered. I was there. I don't know of any massacre. Meir Pale was a brigade commander in 1956, and I talked to him. Uh, uh, I, I actually was, when I was in Israel, I, I interviewed him, among other people, to try to find out what I could find out. He, he told me, because I actually had to check my notes, because Meir Pale, okay, let's, let's find out what he said to me. He told me that, according to him, you know, I, I said, what about what happened in Han Yunus? Do you know anything about that? And he, did, he didn't have any knowledge of it. And I believe the man. I believe the man. What he didn't say was, I was there. There's, there was no massacre. He said, I don't have any knowledge of it. He did, however, talk about uh, security service bastards, as he put it, who went around and eliminated specific people. And he said he, he clearly was repulsed by what they did. But he talked about very very small incidents, very specific things that he basically disowned mm. as, you know, not something he wanted a hand in. Mm. So we actually talked. And like I say, he didn't have any knowledge of Han Yunus. But I, I think the way he, he's phrasing it there makes it sound like he denies they happened, you know. Mm. Some, it's, it's two different things, really. Mm. Um, another criticism in this Associated Press article um, – from uh, University of Washington Department of Comparative Literature professor Jose Alaniz said, Sacco manipulated the reader in all sorts of subtle ways. Very often he will pick angles in his artwork that favor the perspectives of the victim. He'll draw Israeli soldiers or settlers from a low perspective to make them seem more menacing and towering. Now, there's some truth to that. The Israeli um, soldiers in these episodes are sort of large and menacing. Well, I think what I'm trying to do is um, I do tend to take things from the victim's point of view. I want the reader to feel – I want the reader to be in the victim's shoes, generally speaking. And that's what I'm doing. I mean he uses the word manipulates and I find – I don't like that word. 
I'm an artist. I'm trying to figure out ways to get get something across to the reader. Um, also, when he, he talks, he, he, I think he also mentioned that I tended to make kids look more victimized than they actually are, and I think I found that a little silly. In fact, if you've read my work, you'll see that kids are bothering me all the time, and I'm trying to shoo them away mostly. <laughs> Um, you're, you're reminding me, talking about the victim's perspective, you're reminding me of the very end of the book, Footnotes in Gaza, um, where you have been, I'll say, debriefing these older people relentlessly over a period of weeks um, and often pressing them for details through foggy memories, through um, sometimes overwrought emotions. And you're sitting there with an old man, and um, his grandson has joined the conversation, is asking also, this man is not giving you a lot of information. He starts crying. And his grandson said, what is the worst thing you remember from that day? And he says? Fear. says, fear, fear. And you write of yourself. There's a, there's a panel here where you're just staring at him. And you write of yourself. Suddenly I felt ashamed of myself for losing something along the way as I collected my evidence, disentangled it, dissected it, indexed it, and logged it into my chart. And I remembered how often I sat with old men who tried my patience, who rambled on, who got things mixed up, who skipped ahead, who didn't remember the barbed wire at the gate or when the Mukhtars stood up or where the jeeps were parked, how often I sighed and mentally rolled my eyes because I knew more about it than they did. And then for the very first time or, or just about the only time in this book, you, you eliminate words altogether and end with a series of wordless images from this incident. Right. And then finally, after a few images, nothing but blackness, a couple of black pages. Right. Tell us what you lost along the way and tell us what you were trying to do with that final sequence. Well, somehow what you lose along the way, and I think this isn't just true for me, but I think it's probably true for a lot of reporters. They know there's a human story there. Their intention is to get the human story and they actually care about the story. But the process of journalism sort of makes you look for the right angles, looks, look for what's going to fit, look, look for the perfect quote. In fact, in your head, something goes off that says, that's the quote. It happens to me all the time. You just become a professional. You need to be. And you need to sort of pull yourself back from something, even if you care about it, even if you realize it had a great human cost. And in some ways, I mean, when, when he broke down and his, his – uh, grandson said, come on, father, be strong. Grandfather, be strong. Think with your, you know, talk with your, your mind, not your heart. And then he, then he got even more impatient and just said, what was the worst thing you remember about that day? And he said, fear. And suddenly it just, it just all, it hit me in the head. It was like one word and that's kind of what it's about. It's no longer about, okay, where were you and what was going on and all that. That's kind of what it, it is reduced to. And in that, that wordless sequence, I almost want to return the story back to the men. You know, I, I want it to be through their eyes again. I, I was going to ask you, and I think you, you're sort of answering that right now instantly, um, how it was to sit through that testimony over and over again and have people weeping. and. Well, unfortunately, you get used to it. Mm. And, you know, you behave professionally. Yeah. And... Um, if if they're going to cry, I mean, you just sort of let them go. You don't you don't push them. Generally, they they gather themselves and um, can continue. Yeah. You say in your book that you're hoping that your account will will perhaps spur some Israeli um, veterans who are part of that campaign to come forward and maybe talk about their memories. Ha right. Has it done so? As far as I know, not. But I mean, the book just came out. Yeah. Uh, I did manage to speak to one person who was in Han Yunus. He was a comrade of, of a, a soldier who wrote an account of being in Han Yunus and, and called it a human slaughterhouse. But the, his comrade, who's still alive, um, doesn't, says he doesn't remember anything mm. like that at all. He dismisses his friend as being a journalist. As it being a newspaper man, <laughs> right. You don't explicitly state any political opinions in this I think it's ridiculous book. to state political opinions in something like this. This is history. It it stands on its own merits, I think, as as history. It's it's I'm I'm sure it happened, um, but it's up to people to sort of decide how they're going to use it. They might say, "Oh, it's anti-Israeli," or 
look what the Jews did to us. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of up to them. To me, it's a fact, and that and you um, facts are used the way they're used, and I can't I can't control any of that. Was your previous book Palestine published in Israel? No, I don't think so. I don't mm. think so. And this one hasn't been yet, at least I assume. No. Yeah, I wonder if it will be. I'm curious. We'll see. Yeah. Um, you just shed a few tears yourself. Our listeners may not have known it, but that happened. Okay. Is that the first time in a while on this, or does it come it's back the f- all the time? That's a hard question to to answer. It's the first time in an interview ever. Um, every now and then, I'll you know when I'm drawing. Yeah, I thought about that all those years, day in day out drawing. Well, I'm 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 just sick of drawing bodies. I'm I'm sick of trying to inhabit it so you can draw it. You know, you, you have to feel the weight of it. And, um, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's just difficult. I think I'm burned out now. Joe, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. We've been listening to an interview with the cartoonist and journalist Joe Sacco. And in the course of that interview, I had a couple of other big questions on my mind. I didn't have time to ask Joe since he had to run off to another engagement, but I caught up with him later by phone. Here's that second conversation. Joe, when you went to Gaza to investigate these incidents, uh, these apparent atrocities that took place in 1956, you started talking to people, and um, a lot of them, a lot of younger Palestinians, and by younger I mean people, um, you know, middle-aged and and younger who didn't live through those events— were really perplexed as to why you were even interested. And even some of the old folks who had experienced these things firsthand were, again, you know, a little bemused by by this uh, expedition of yours. I mean, people really didn't think that this is necessarily all that important or relevant. No, that's true. I mean, I, I wouldn't say everyone. Some younger people, definitely, their ears picked up and they were... Uh They'd never heard it, and so they were they were interested and wondered why they'd never heard it. But on on a, you know a number of occasions, just as many occasions it seemed, uh, younger people would just sort of say, "Well, you know, look what's going on. Look what's going on a couple hundred meters away, where, where uh, homes are being demolished, or you know, we're being bombed here. You know, Barrage Camp was attacked, or Jean was attacked, or something like that. That was going on while I was there. So they they were wondering, why am I focusing on the past when the present is so bad? Well, the question that hovers over this book, of course, at least one of the questions, is is um, how important are these events way back 50 years ago? And um, you never really opine on that in the book. And, and as we said, you don't issue any political opinions about Middle Eastern affairs at all. But you do have some very telling um, quotes um, from a couple of people. One, actually, you got from uh, a senior Hamas official uh, I believe when you visited Gaza in 2001 That's right. with Chris Hedges, and you were talking about the events in Han Yunus, uh, this man is uh, was uh, Abed El-Aziz El-Rantizi, who in fact was assassinated um, right, yeah. later, um, and, and by the Israelis. Right. He was a, a wanted uh, Hamas official. But he apparently had lived through the, the massacre in Han Yunus, and um, I guess his uncle was killed. He was nine years old at the time. And he said uh, to you, it left a wound in my heart that can never heal. I'm telling you a story, and I'm almost crying. This sort of action can never be forgotten. They planted hatred in our heart. Um, the obvious implication of that quote is that events like this are, you know, behind the hostilities today. Well, I think an event like that radicalizes some people or brings something to the fore in their mind. And I think for him as an individual... It really resonated. It, it matters very much to him. He said it planted hatred in his heart. I think for other people, <clears throat> an event like that happens, and it just leaves them whipped. It turns them into rabbits, just afraid, just afraid that it's going to happen again. And sort of, you know, uh, it, it, it sort of it depends on the individual, I think. Mm. But, I mean, there was an attack on Gaza about a year ago. Do you not think that some people are going to become hateful because of it, 
uh, because of the world's reaction to it, which is basically ignoring what they're going through now. They can't rebuild, and they're under tight blockade. Some people are going to turn that into, it's going to end up in their minds, uh, it's, going to, it's going to end up emotionally as frustration, anger, or maybe hatred. Now, for other people, it just means we have to survive this, I just need to feed my family, and I'm so scared, I don't even know what to think anymore. Hmm. I think it depends on the individual. Individuals react to events in different ways. And by highlighting 1956, it's a way of stepping back in the past and showing how this could have an effect on certain people or a certain generation, just like what's going on now is going to have an effect on another generation. And the problem for the Palestinians, I think, is this is generation after generation after generation. It never, it never really ceases. It, it's sort of compounded. And sometimes someone, someone who experienced something in the 50s won't necessarily relate that story in great detail to, to uh, his or her children. But what they might give to them is a sense of frustration and bitterness and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They cannot look back on any event like, let's say, the British can look back on the Battle of Britain and think of it as some sort of thing that happened that now you can almost romanticize. I mean, if the, if, if the Blitz was going on today and had been going on for 50 years, where would what happened 50 years ago stand in relationship to where, with what's going on today? I mean, to me, it's an open question. Yeah. Now, as your book makes clear, and as anybody, as just about everyone knows, there's, there was... Back in '56, this was hardly the beginning of these things, and a, and a whole cycle of back and forth violence had already been in progress for quite some time. And, and you relate a number of events, including raids by uh, Palestinian guerrillas or Fedayeen across the border into Israel. Sometimes simply stealing things, but other times killing people, killing civilians. Um, and one incident happened. I think um, I think it was in April of 1956. A, a kibbutznik that is a man who lived on a kibbutz, um, was killed. And he had uh, met uh, Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan, uh, and uh, Dayan returned to the kibbutz um, after this man's death and delivered a eulogy, um, which you quote from. And I I guess this has become fairly famous. Uh, It's mentioned in a couple of books I read. Whether it's famous or not, I'm not sure. Um, Could you read it? um, I'll read what I have, and you can tell me when to stop. Okay. Let us not today cast blame on the murderers. What can we say against their terrible hatred of us? For eight years now, they have sat in the refugee camps of Gaza and have watched how, before their very eyes, we have turned their lands and villages where they and their forefathers previously dwelled into our home. Beyond the border surges a sea of hatred and revenge, revenge that looks towards the day when the calm will blunt our alertness, when we shall listen to the ambassadors of malign hypocrisy who call upon us to lay down our arms. Let us not fear to look squarely at the hatred that consumes and fills the lives of the Arabs who live around us. That is the fate of our generation. This is our choice, to be ready and armed, tough and harsh, or else the sword shall fall from our hands and our lives will be cut short. So here's Moshe Dayan, famous hero of several Israeli wars, saying, um, let's not cast blame on the murderers. And I don't think he's being completely sarcastic there. He says, what can we say against their terrible hatred of us for eight years uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, they've sat in their refugee camps in Gaza and watched us turn their former lands into our homes. Um, but on the other hand, because of this hatred that um, has sprung from this, we can't let our guard down. We have to be tough. What do you take from that quote? Well, um, I think it's one of the most extraordinary things ever said by someone intimately involved on one side uh, about uh, the whole the conflict the Arab-Israeli conflict. It seems to me that Dayan was putting his finger on the existential crisis of not just one people, not just the Israelis, but also his enemy, the Palestinians. And I think that's extraordinary, really. He, you can see that it's, uh, there's a certain amount of empathy. He understands, he knows that when, you know, whatever you can say about the conflict, when, it, when you really boil it down to its essence, one people replaced another people in, in a certain land. Or that's how the Palestinians interpreted it, and he saw that. He he said, they've watched us uh, basically work the land of their forefathers. But he he also says, this is is the way it is now, and we cannot, we we have to 
defend against what that leads to, which is a great hatred of us. And we, you know, we have to defend ourselves. You know, we can't get around defending yourself. You have to do that. It's a very um, unvarnished piece of realpolitik. It is. And I mean, I think ultimately when you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you see violence by both sides. Both sides have behaved pretty badly toward the other. I mean, I think that's just pretty clear. But what you also see is that one people created a state, and it's a vibrant state. It has, you know, great cultural things going on and uh, economic things going on, and the other people haven't. They have nothing. A lot, you know, a lot of them really have nothing. And so that's the difference. The, there's great violence between them, but one people have triumphed and the others have had a catastrophe. Personally, do you find your thoughts ever drifting towards some positive image of the future, perhaps a two-state solution? Well, I think, I think a two-state solution would be probably the best idea. I think for a while, the vast majority of these people need to sort of separate themselves on some level before they can sort of integrate, because there are many commonalities, I think, between them. Um, it's always been clear, in a way, what would lead to a two-state solution. That stuff has never been um, obscure. Basic withdrawal to the 67 border, you know, maybe you've got to change this or that. Jerusalem probably needs to be the capital of both peoples, and the refugee problem needs to be addressed. Uh, whatever that means. I'm not, I'm not coming up with the specifics of it. The thing is, actually, the closer I get to it, and it could be because I've become closer and closer to it as far as you get into the bowels of it, the less optimistic I am about it. Hmm. It seems like there are just certain things that keep making the obvious solution, or the one that's probably the most palatable one you can come up with, we're getting further and further away from from that. For people who... um think it's hopeless simply because of some notion of implacable hatred, um, as opposed to some of the material and political realities that you just talked about. There is, um, curiously enough in your book, one figure who I think may, um, in a very surprising way, argue against that. And his name, uh, the name you give him is Khaled? Yes. And that's, that's correct. I mean, Khaled once told me, I hate the Jews, but I could live with them. And in some weird way, I thought that was almost like a hopeful statement, because he is going to hate the Israelis because of what's happened to him and what he's seen, but he's a, he's a, he, was a, he is, or probably was now, you could say, a fighting man. And often people who are doing the fighting understand the cost and understand that, okay, this is how it is. At some point, the fighting needs to stop. We need to recognize something about each other. He is the kind of person who would have accept, who would accept the two-state solution and even told me he would probably give up his rights as a refugee in order just to live in peace and, and raise his family in peace. Well, Khaled, I said it was surprising. Uh, a little more background on him. He has been a, a um, resistance fighter uh, uh, allied with uh, Fatah, and uh, he says he's killed collaborators, uh, people who've collaborated with the Israelis, he has done other operations. He is wanted by uh, the Israeli security apparatus and, and uh, stands to be assassinated or taken out any day whenever they locate him. And yet he says that uh, he's against suicide bombing, that he could live with a two-state solution, and um, he could live alongside of Israelis. So. Well, my, my problem with the way sometimes the, this, is, this whole... Arab-Israeli thing is, is reported is it leaves out so much nuance and so much that's complicated. And if people knew some of those sorts of things, you know, maybe they would take some hope that there are people who are tough-minded and would fight for their country, but also know when it's time to sort of okay, that's enough. We've we've lost a lot, but perhaps we can retain this, and you know, let's try to work something out. Now he says he can live with the Jews. Maybe if if there was peace probably his son would start dealing with the Jews. I mean, I've heard so many stories of Palestinians tell me of before the first intifada, having even Jewish business partners, visiting each other, things like this. I mean, it is, it is conceivable that uh, the people can live in peace. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have any doubt in my mind that those people, have, I mean, they do, in a fundamental level, I think they can live in peace. But 
will they be allowed to get to that point? Well, not if there's settlements that continue, not if, uh, uh, not if the Palestinians are divided amongst themselves, you know, not if there are rocket attacks, not if there are suicide bombings. That stuff perpetuates the whole problem, obviously. Well, Joe, we're just going to have to leave it at that. Okay. Again, Joe Sacco's most recent book is Footnotes in Gaza. He's also the author of Palestine, Safe Area Garajda, The Fixer, and War's End. And you might have heard me say earlier that Moshe Dayan was the Israeli defense minister. Well, he was later, but at the time of the remarks that I was referring to in 1956, he was chief of staff of the Israeli defense forces. That's my correction for the week. I will be back next week to make more mistakes. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. This is Central Coast Public Radio KUSP Santa Cruz, 88.9 FM, and translators K212AA Los Gatos, 90.3 FM, K207CN Santa Cruz, 89.3 FM, K217EK Palo Colorado Canyon, 91.3 FM, K237EV Big Sur Valley, 95.3 FM, and K206BQ Hollister, 89.1 FM.